Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the destruction accomplished over decades by adherence to a libertarian, neoliberal ideology in the UK, which culminated recently in the tanking value of the British pound sterling and the resignation of the shortest-serving prime minister ever. Clips today are from AJ+, The Financial Times, K and Skittles, Double Down News, Democracy Now!, LBC, and Who, What, Why, with an additional members-only clip from the Financial Times. And by the way, the midterms are a week and a half away now, so be sure to check out the show notes for our midterms minute section, highlighting key races across the country and how to get involved. Today's focus is on the remaining toss-up races in the House. Remember, voting is not enough, so get involved and help get out the vote. And stay tuned to the end of the show for my tie-in of the recent break-in and violent attack at Nancy Pelosi's residence with the broad strokes of today's topic. In October 2021, Britain's fuel crisis was so bad that the government sent the army out to make deliveries to gas stations. A shortage of truck drivers had led to long lines for fuel. At the same time, and for the same reason, some supermarket shelves started looking very empty. Meanwhile, farms were slaughtering their pigs because slaughterhouses had run out of workers. For months, employers had been warning about a labour shortage. But why was the UK suddenly short-staffed? To answer that, we've got to go back to 2016 and a vote that shocked the world. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. On June 23rd, 2016, the UK narrowly voted for Brexit to withdraw from the European Union. It was sold as a way to get independence, save millions of pounds and gain full control of the UK's borders. But what Brexit meant in practice was leaving a political and economic union that the UK had helped build for the last 50 years. One of the EU's biggest achievements was that every citizen had the freedom to travel, live and work wherever they wanted. So that meant a Brit could decide to move to sunny Spain without needing permission from anyone, and a Romanian could get a job in Britain just as easily. Brexit ended that relationship and exposed just how much the UK had relied on foreign workers for the low-paid, essential work that had kept the country going. Alexandra Bullat is from an organisation that speaks up on behalf of EU citizens in the UK. If we look at driver shortages, if we look at social care, if we look at agriculture, for instance, those are all sectors where quite historically there was a high percentage of migrant workers, especially people from, uh, from the European Union, especially in the jobs that are lower paid. Before the UK left the EU, around 25% of workers from 10 Eastern European EU states worked in so-called low-skilled jobs, compared to just 9% of UK-born workers. But that's all changed and there's been an exodus of EU workers. Prices are going up, <laughs> the quality of living is decreasing for many, many workers and I think some people, that, at least people that I spoke to, uh, did uh, realise they could have uh, in some other countries in the EU or outside the EU a better quality of life and perhaps less of a worry about you know, their future status in terms of immigration. The post-Brexit immigration rules mean that when a Polish truck driver leaves the UK, it's much harder to replace them with a new Polish truck driver. Brexit campaigners hoped that British workers would come forward to fill the gaps, but that hasn't happened in large enough numbers. And Covid added to the problem, 
delaying 40,000 truck driving tests, according to the government. For the EU workers that the UK depended on, Brexit might have been the final straw. Because even before Brexit, UK governments had played to right-wing xenophobia for more than a decade. In 2007, Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown promised British jobs for British workers. Five years later, the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government launched a policy called the Hostile Environment, which was a tactic to encourage immigrants to leave by making life difficult for them. And the anti-foreigner message was one of the key tactics of Brexit campaigners, sometimes dog-whistly, sometimes openly racist. European embassies in London registered 60 suspected hate crimes in the three months after the Brexit vote, almost all targeting Eastern Europeans. So look, the hostile environment policy, Brexit and hate crimes, all of these things helped push key workers out of Britain and push Britain into a crisis. In terms of the psychological impact that Brexit did make, uh, quite a few, you know, quite a lot, I would say, EU, EU migrants not feel as welcome as they felt before. Yes, I think there is a concern about, uh, well, hate crimes, but also broader racism and xenophobia in society. And Alexandra says it's only now that there are shortages that the UK is starting to realise the value of the workers it's lost. Migrants are not just commodities and taxpayers, they're part of our communities, their families and neighbours. And we need to rethink this whole discourse around what kind of work we value. While migrants suffered from xenophobic narratives and the government's hostile policies, they weren't the only group to be outcast. There was a sustained political and media attack on people living in poverty, a group that makes up about 20% of the UK population. The most vulnerable were labelled benefit scroungers. In other words, people who live off government handouts and don't want to work. The reality, though, is a little different. Of those eligible for an unemployment check, less than a third of them claim it. But the benefit scroungers narrative set the stage for a cut in state benefits. One in seven children are going hungry and one in ten adults are going hungry as well. Now, the social security payments for those on low incomes is called universal credit. And this government is now cutting universal credit by a thousand pounds. This government to now cut those payments further to lead to more hungry children is absolutely disgraceful. In 2021, UK energy prices rose by 12 percent. For three million people, many of whom depend on state benefits, that may mean having to choose between heating their homes or buying food. There definitely is a cost of living crisis in the UK. So look, we're seeing bills arising. We're expecting inflation to hit 5% by next spring. A typical family of four could expect their bills to rise by about £1,700. Those on low incomes in particular, they're facing what is going to be a cold, dark and hungry winter ahead. But don't think that this is all because of Brexit. This crisis has been building for more than a decade. When the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government took power from the Labour Party in 2010, it said austerity was the only way to recover from the 2008 financial crisis. Even before the pandemic, austerity left the UK economy $130 billion smaller than it would have been without it. And average wages have stayed pretty much flat since 2008. But COVID set household incomes back even further. It's thought they won't get back to pre-pandemic levels until at least 2023. It's difficult to quantify the exact impact that Brexit is having. It's making things far more expensive. It's making it more difficult to trade across borders. Shipping costs are 25% more to this country. That gives you a good idea of how much more expensive Brexit is making things in this country. It's about a quarter more than we would expect if we were still 
inside the European Union. And while benefits are being cut and prices are rising, taxes on working people are going up. This government wanted to raise the money. It could have done so from the wealthiest people and instead chose to raise taxes on working people. Increasingly what we're seeing in this country is how well you do isn't really about how hard you work, but it's how much you own. Or if you're young, it's how rich your parents are. The UK used to be known not so long ago as the sick man of Europe. Then in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, things improved. But now I find when I travel in Europe and elsewhere, people ask me, what's wrong with Britain? And it sounds very familiar to me. It reminds me of my childhood. So this will be my answer. We are facing six interlocking crises simultaneously. The first is economic. We experienced the financial crisis, but we've sort of overcome that. But the big problem is that productivity is stagnant. In fact, we have almost the worst record on productivity among all the rich countries apart from Italy. And that makes life very, very difficult because on average, we're not getting better off. The second crisis is over national identity. And in particular, the fundamental question about whether national identity is exclusive. One must have absolute sovereignty in the nation one identifies with or whether it can be complex, i.e. can one be European and British at the same time. And this relates, of course, to the way this particular crisis has emerged, which is Brexit, the divisions over Brexit, which divide the country evenly and lead one side to conclude that the other side is essentially treacherous because it has betrayed its country for this European cause. The fourth crisis is political or a politics. These divisions over Brexit, these divisions over national identity, in other words, made into a political cause, divide our parties. They have rendered both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party incapable of performing their functions as governing parties or as the opposition party. And that, of course, makes political life basically uh, impossible. The fifth crisis is constitutional. These are not just narrowly political questions. Membership of the EU was a constitutional settlement for Britain. It resolved, as it were, the rules of the political game for well over 40 years. Undoing it by a referendum was itself a constitutional device. We've had this now for a few decades, but we've never really thought seriously about how you implement constitutional decisions of this kind made by referendum, because Parliament has to do it and the referendum's meaning is not obvious. And the final crisis, and possibly the most important of all, is simply one of leadership. Political leadership has been extraordinarily weak now for quite a long time. And it looks likely that the next election will be between Boris Johnson leading the Conservatives and Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party. If so, none of these issues that I've discussed are likely to be resolved. And the overwhelming likelihood is that the British constitution, political settlement and political life will continue to be a troubled mess for the indefinite future.
Thatcher's election in 1979 was in part a response to a series of economic crises that had defined the 70s, including a global stock market crash, a banking crisis, and an oil crisis. Her response to this economic instability was a simple one. The free market would get us out of this jam, but to free the market, we have to destroy the post-war consensus and suppress labor unions who are restricting the market with pesky inefficiencies like workers' rights. During Thatcher's reign, she would transition both the economic model of the UK, but also the ideological norms of the country towards neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is free market ideology. It holds that if we deregulate the market, it can and will solve our economic problems and lead to greater prosperity for all. John the Duncan, who makes a lot of great videos about neoliberalism, cites award-winning American economist Joseph Stiglitz, describing neoliberalism as that grab bag of ideas based on the fundamentalist notion that markets are self-correcting, allocate resources efficiently, and serve the public interest well. It was this market fundamentalism that underlay Thatcherism, Reaganomics, and the so-called Washington Consensus in favour of privatisation, liberalisation, and independent central banks focusing single-mindedly on inflation. John goes on to rightly point out a problem with the way Stiglitz characterizes neoliberalism. He is certainly criticizing neoliberalism in this article, which opens by saying, History has not been kind to neoliberalism. But he does so in a way that makes a crucial mistake. And it's a mistake that is echoed by the helpful What is Neoliberalism explainers put out by the BBC and Harvard University that come up first if you search neoliberalism on YouTube. Both Stiglitz, the highly regarded academic, and these serious, well-resourced institutions are assuming that the rhetoric of neoliberalism necessarily lines up with the economic policy of neoliberalism, which wouldn't be a problem unless politicians weren't always completely honest with us. You really think someone would do that? Just go on the parliament and tell lies? Neoliberalism is best understood in two halves, ideology and economics. The small state free market fetishizing narrative about neoliberalism that we see from Stiglitz and most mainstream discussions of neoliberalism is often treated as if it is its economic policy, when in fact it is its ideological policy. The idea that the market possesses an almost mystical capacity for self-correction and management, if only the darn state would stay out of its way, is an ideological statement. And ideology isn't for your leaders, it's for you. So, why do I describe what many consider to be the heart of neoliberalism as ideological, but not economic? Because neoliberal governments like Thatcher's do not actually shrink the state or follow a policy of non-interference in the market. Like the neoliberals who would follow her, Thatcher loved the state. In fact, Thatcher significantly expanded the police and security aspects of the state throughout her time in power. This was necessary in part to combat organized labor, from which she was attempting to strip crucial rights and protections. In addition, Thatcher's government maintained what Richard Woodward calls a dual industrial policy. This is the practice of rhetorically opposing state intervention in the market, while in reality intervening quite extensively. 
Thatcher's government actually subsidized key industries, including the automotive industry, which also featured a bailout of British Leyland to the tune of just under a billion pounds, which, adjusted for inflation, is worth... <laughs> In 2022, the agriculture industry also received enormous subsidies, and in 1981, Thatcher defended the heavy subsidization of British farms after promising that the state would stop interfering in the market by stating that our farmers are being asked to compete not on equal terms, but against heavily subsidized competitors. We like equality now, Maggie. This is a very revealing statement. It is an admission that the fundamental argument that industry is at its best when unregulated and free of the state is incorrect. If left to their own devices, British agriculture companies would not have been able to compete with those of other countries operating on a more Keynesian model, where many are partially or entirely nationalized and subsidized with public money. That economic model simply competes more effectively. Keep that idea in mind for a little later. So, how did she get away with this? Taking every opportunity to extol the virtues of state non-interference in industry and using that firmly held belief to attack regulations on businesses and workers' rights, and then turning around and massively subsidizing private industry. That kind of hypocrisy should have been political self-destruction, surely. Well, she deployed a very clever trick that is known in the field of political science as lying. You really think someone would do that? Woodward's research into the spending of Thatcher's government found that while on paper industrial subsidy reduced during Thatcher's leadership, enormous sums of government spending were simply being categorized as something else. For example, billions of pounds of agricultural subsidy were instead classified as departmental research, advisory services, and administration. I'm completely serious. It's as simple as that. They just classified their subsidies as something else in the treasury and said, look, we're spending less on subsidies. British journalists on social media are always announcing how important they are for holding power accountable and keeping the public informed. So it may surprise you to learn that this scandalous practice of misrepresenting state spending to give the appearance of a commitment to unimpeded free market policy went largely uninvestigated by the media at the time. There was and has continued to be a tendency to focus exclusively on official statements and not... You know, what Thatcher's government actually did. Woodward described this as leading to a state-orchestrated masquerade, in which the very people who should have been criticizing the inconsistencies between Thatcher's ideological rhetoric and actual economic policy were instead complicit in it. Perhaps the extremely wealthy owners of our papers and news networks, who were no doubt ecstatic that the tide was turning against labor unions, had something to do with that. Remember, ideology isn't for them, it's for you. Thatcher is famously quoted as saying, Economics are the method, the object is to change the heart and soul. Her neoliberal project was not just about selling off publicly owned industries while pumping money into the pockets of private industrialists, although that was one of her signature moves. British gas shares, they come out in November. If you see Sid, tell him. Her project was about reorienting the way the people view themselves and their relationship to the state. The post-war consensus imbued the public with the idea that the state owes them. 
Regular working-class people fought in two world wars, rebuilt the country after both of them, and did all of the work that actually keeps the country running. It was justified for them to expect that the state, in turn, would look after them. This was the idea that Thatcher aimed to dismantle. By cultivating a sense that people are not members of a society in which they owe each other something, but sovereign, entrepreneurial individuals whose value is dictated by their personal financial achievements. The perception of state assistance and publicly owned services began to change. During the post-war period, welfare was seen by many workers as a victory. Their struggles in the labor movement led to a system where, if a worker lost their job, was injured, or became ill and unable to work for long periods, the country that their labor had been propping up would have to look after them. They put in, and they could take out when they needed it. But if people are not members of society, but individuals responsible for their own economic security, welfare becomes something shameful. A worker claiming welfare is no longer enjoying their hard-earned right as a worker. They are experiencing failure as an individual who has been unable to support themselves without state assistance. This led to a stigma around benefits which, of course, has continued to the modern day. And this stigma spread throughout the public services. The state providing something for you became an embarrassment, a shameful thing. Unless, of course, you're a wealthy industrialist accepting millions in government grants, but by concealing the subsidization of private industry and demonizing public services used by the working class, Thatcher eroded solidarity among the working class and transformed many working people from class-conscious subjects who understood their position in society into temporarily embarrassed middle-class homeowners. With programs like Right to Buy, she touted homeownership as the ultimate expression of both success and security. Climbing the ladder to become middle class became the new avenue for a worker to improve their conditions, rather than unionizing and struggling for better pay and conditions with other workers. And she was quite successful at increasing the number of homeowners who would now have a personal economic incentive to support certain conservative policies which she achieved again via government subsidy. She once again interfered in the free market to expand the homeowning population, a crucial step in ideologically shifting the British public towards neoliberal ideals. On the eve of the Thatcherite crusade, half of all workers were trade unionists. By 1995, the number had fallen to a third. The old industries associated with working-class identity were being destroyed. There no longer seemed anything to celebrate about being working class. But Thatcherism promised an alternative. Leave the working class behind, it said, and come join the property-owning middle classes instead. Those who failed to do so would have no place in the new Britain. Another way Thatcher's project was damaging ideologically is it instilled the idea in the public that capitalism and the state are diametrically opposed that they are antithetical to each other, and as one grows, the other must therefore shrink. In fact, it is a direct byproduct of Thatcherism and the neoliberal turn that so many people who themselves have a fairly sophisticated understanding of capitalism and its problems still view anything other than full-blown libertarian free market economics as somehow hostile to capitalism as a system. Think, socialism is when the government does stuff. 
when the reality is that capitalism needs the state for a great deal of important functions. The state is able to centralize military power and control a monopoly on direct force. Through that force, it is able to protect property rights, which is extremely important if your wealth comes from owning property rather than selling your labor. It also serves to discipline labor by breaking strikes, criminalizing undesirable behavior, and protecting you, the boss or landlord, from physical retaliation for your economic violence against your workers and tenants. And that's to say nothing of the capacity of the state to subjugate other economies for the enrichment of capitalists at home. We're going to free your economy, even if we have to murder and enslave you to do it. By obfuscating these aspects of the state's function, assisted by a deeply incurious media, by concealing the theft of billions of public funds which were funneled into the private sector, by insisting that they are shrinking the state while expanding its authority, the neoliberal politician is able to create an ideological environment where people can oppose the state, oppose all social programs, and associate those positions with greater social and economic freedom, all while supporting the armed aspects of the state which actually enforce a certain social and economic status quo, which reduce both personal and collective freedom, all while never feeling for a second that your views are contradictory. And that is the heart of a lot of modern conservative politics in the UK, the US, and beyond. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. You can see it as an experiment. What happens when the neoliberal ultras take over a government and get everything 
they want. The pound tanks, the economy collapses, everything goes to shit almost overnight. Welcome to Oligarch Island. Liz Truss is the oligarch's prime minister. She's a kind of Manchurian candidate put in place by these dark money lobby groups on behalf of oligarchs and corporations, most of whom are not domiciled in this country at all. She is working for global capital against the interests of this nation. These people are fake patriots. They are actually undermining the status of this nation, the short sellers, the hedge funders cleaning up, the oligarchs laughing all the way to the bank and everyone else pushed towards destitution. Absolute misery and chaos and collapse in a country that was one of the richest, most stable, most prosperous on earth, ripped apart by this neoliberal experiment. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are members of an extreme cult called neoliberalism. When this cult first started to be developed in the late 1930s, it was regarded as just crazy, completely fringe, marginal, no one paid it much attention. But then it started receiving serious money, money from some of the richest people on earth. And it started being championed by those rich people's media. They began to push it and push it and push it until eventually it became the water in which we swim or to be more accurate, the sewage in which we drown. Neoliberalism became so much a part of our political lives that we no longer even recognize it as being a distinct thing. Neoliberalism has been the dominant ideology in this country for the past 40 years since Mrs. Thatcher came to power and Blair saw himself as inheriting Thatcher's mantle. He slightly modified some of its more extreme elements. You shrink the state, you transfer public services to the private sector, try to prevent trade unions from exercising power and you switch our perceptions of ourselves from being citizens to being consumers. The market must take precedence over politics, which means money takes precedence over democracy. And the people with the money, the oligarchs, the billionaires, are the people who are effectively put in charge. And while it's been this pervasive force in this country for 40 years, Truss and Kwarteng are the most extreme advocates of neoliberalism that we've ever had in government. They've been schooled by the dark money neoliberal think tanks, organizations such as the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Adam Smith Institute, the Taxpayers Alliance, some of which go back to the very foundations of neoliberalism and were the organizations that were funded in the first instance by these immensely rich people and turned this from being a fringe cult to a mainstream political organization. Both Truss and Kwarteng have been rigorously trained, particularly by the Institute of Economic Affairs, in this doctrine. And several of their crucial advisors, people like Ruth Porter, people like Matthew Sinclair, people like Caroline Elson, people like Alex Wilde, they are straight out of these extremist so-called think tanks who refuse to reveal who's funding them. They're no longer lobbying government, they are the government. Now, the thing about these so-called think tanks is they claim to be independent think tanks, just thinking about stuff, as if they're some kind of academic, saying, hmm, yes, what's the best policy for this country? Let us objectively determine that. In reality, they are lobby groups acting on behalf of the oligarchs and the corporations who give them their money. And every so often there's a leak 
and we discover who's been paying them. Oh, it's the tobacco companies. Who would have guessed? It's the oil companies. Who would have guessed? It's some really, really nasty US billionaires. Who would have guessed? Could there perhaps be a connection between the people who fund them and the positions that they take, that the very rich should stop paying tax, that industry should stop being regulated, that trade unions should effectively be shut down, that protest movements should be shut down. They are just lobby groups on behalf of these organisations whose identity they won't reveal. But here's the astonishing thing. The BBC, in common with almost all the rest of the media, invites these people onto its current affairs programmes every single day. They populate Question Time, the Today programme, Newsnight, the whole lot. They're on there almost 24-7 without ever being challenged as to who's funding them and who they represent. So when we see the absolute financial, economic, social catastrophe that this extreme version of neoliberalism has just inflicted on this country, that catastrophe is not just on Truss and Quateng. It's also on those dark money think tanks. It's also on the BBC. It's also on the billionaire press, which has been championing these crazy ideas for so long. I think the most likely way this will pan out is that the massive economic crisis caused entirely by this government is going to put a huge squeeze on public finances. And then this government is going to say, oh, we can't afford to fund public services. Damn. We'll have to privatise the NHS. We'll have to do all the things they've always wanted to do. Destroy the administrative state. Privatise everything. Rip down public services. Rip down public protections. And they'll be able to say, this time they'll have a justification for it. There's no money. We can't afford it. And why is there no money? Because they squandered that money on giving it away to the richest people, on giving it away to the energy companies on tanking the pound, on tanking our economy. I see this program as being as dangerous politically as it is economically and socially. For the 30 years following the Second World War, governments everywhere recognised that to prevent the resurgence of fascism, you had to ensure that people's needs were met. You had to ensure that people had economic security, that if they fell out of work, they wouldn't starve, they wouldn't become destitute. You had to ensure that there were good public services so that people's need for health, for education, for all the other things which make for a good life were there. And governments knew that if those things were in place, people would not succumb to the siren call of fascism. They would have too much to lose. They couldn't be conned so easily if they weren't desperate for a solution. And fascism plays on people's desperation. But then with the advance of neoliberalism and its adoption by Thatcher, by Reagan, and then by their many imitators around the world, that lesson was forgotten. And they ripped apart the social safety net. They ripped apart public services. And now that process is accelerating greatly. And the great danger when that happens is that the fascists come back and the fascists say, we're the new broom, we'll sort everything out, we'll sweep away the corruption, we'll solve these intractable problems. Of course, that's another lie because there is no fascist movement ever which has not been supported by the oligarchs, but it pretends otherwise. It pretends it's going to save us from the very forces that have caused this mess when actually it's an acceleration of those forces. The danger is that if you don't have real and workable alternatives to the disastrous program that this government is enforcing, 
then people are going to look around and they're going to turn to an anti-politics. And that anti-politics is most clearly represented by fascism. And this is why Labour has to step up. This is why Labour has to stop being this timid, restrained, tooth-sucking movement that it's become and actually introduce the radical proposals for changing our lives, for improving our lives, for ensuring we have the public services and the economic security that we need to ensure that it is seen as a genuine alternative to this government and not a slightly modified version of it. I think if you were to put your finger on the beating heart of neoliberalism, if indeed it has a heart, it's the denial of humanity. It's the denial of human relations. It's the denial of anything except buying and selling. There should be no empathy, no compassion, no altruism, no kindness. We should not care about other people. That does not reflect human nature. They're constantly trying to tell us, you are selfish, you are greedy. And sure, we've all got some selfishness and greed in us, but these are not our dominant characteristics. There's a huge body of research showing that our dominant characteristics are empathy and altruism and benevolence and kindness towards other people, a community, a family, our being together with other people and wanting them to have good lives as well as ourselves to have good lives. So we will not stand for this. We must not stand for this. We must gather in unprecedented numbers to defy this attempt by a weird extreme cult to impose their beliefs on us. This disaster is on the government, but it's also on the media big time. It was the media who gave a massive platform to these crazy neoliberal ultras who have tanked the economy and ripped the fabric of the nation apart. What happened was that Liz Truss um, applied pure neoliberal theory in the expectation that it would act as a kind of magic dust which would create massive growth and prosperity in this country just as neoliberal theory predicted. Her policies were shaped by opaquely funded lobby groups. The Institute of Economic Affairs, the Taxpayers Alliance, the Adam Smith Institute, um, Centre for Policy Studies, all, all of which boasted on September the 23rd, when her mini budget was published, that they'd got exactly what they wanted and that they themselves were the authors of those policies. Clearly, they're now trying to distance themselves. And, and what they've been trying to do throughout their existence is to sweep away taxes on the rich, to sweep away regulations, to sweep away trade unions, to sweep away protest and other fundamental civic rights and create what they think of as a pure market economy, which really means allowing the rich to overwhelm democracy. It means plutocracy rather than democracy. Now, in, in the past, successive prime ministers have had similar agendas, but they've also had to temper them slightly because they have some more or less realistic appreciation of what the public might be able to tolerate. But Liz Truss, her great failing from point of view of being a politician was she's completely unable to read people. She seems to have no social antennae at all and no concept of what she might be doing to other people. I, I believe she's entirely devoid of empathy. And, and so 
she didn't try to disguise her agenda. She didn't try to wrap it up in platitudes. She just forced it through. And interestingly, for someone who believes that the markets should have the final word on everything, the markets had the final word on Liz Truss because she tanked the economy. And, you know, the really terrifying thing is not so much who's in charge, but what they're able to pass in terms of legislation while they are prime minister. And something which has scarcely been reported in the press here, I mean, it's just, it, it beggars belief that we're not all screaming about this, was the public order bill, which was passed through the House of Commons just a few days ago by the Home Secretary the day before she was pushed out of office, like all Tory casualised well, workers in, 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 our, in our Tory economy. As soon as she'd done, done the business, she was chucked out. And this public order bill is the most repressive legislation ever experienced in the UK in the modern era and potentially the most repressive legislation in any OECD member in recent times. If you have protested in the previous five years, you can be forced to wear an electronic tag and to have your home fitted with monitoring equipment. You can be forced to report to the police as and when they choose. You can be forced to stay at home. You can be forced not to go to certain places. You are no longer to associate with, with um, friends of yours. You're no longer allowed to attend any protest or indeed to talk about attending a protest or encourage anyone else to attend a protest. Uh, this is just one of the astonishingly draconian measures which has been pushed through um, right under the radar uh, just before the trust government collapsed. Audiobooks may have started out as an accommodation for the blind, but of course now millions more benefit from the ease and convenience of audiobooks. And you may not need me to convince you about audiobooks, but I do want to convince you to switch and start getting your books from Libro. By far, the best way to purchase audiobooks is by subscribing to an audiobook club for a flat fee to get one book credit each month, plus a discount on any other purchases. And this deal may sound familiar, as the audiobook arm of the big box store in the sky offers just such a plan. But while they are trying to squash the little guy... Libro is explicitly fighting for the independent booksellers. For just one example, Amazon works to sign exclusivity deals to lock up books from big-name authors to their platform, which prevents indies and even libraries from having a chance to compete. I mean, competing with other businesses is one thing, but keeping books out of the grasp of libraries is downright unethical. On the other hand, Libro is a special purpose corporation designed to share their profits directly with indie booksellers in partnership with Bookshop.org. So it couldn't be more clear. Make the switch and join Libro through our link to let them know we sent you. Go to bestoftheleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. That's bestoftheleft.com slash Libro. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for your convenience. Shout out to Julian, who says, Hi, James, I could tell you a joke about trickle-down economics, but you probably wouldn't get it. <laughs> Just think about it for a minute, all right? So here is the idea behind trickle-down economics. Tax cuts benefit those who pay the most tax. The more tax you pay, the more you benefit from a tax cut. This is not 
complicated. This is not rocket science, right? So the thinking is behind it that if people who have already got the most money have even more money to spend, then that money will make its way into the pockets of the people with the least money. I think it's a pretty disgusting ideology uh, for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't work. But number two, it sells an almighty lie. It sells a lie that policies designed to enrich the richest are somehow actually designed to help the poorest. Now, if you could prove to me that that were true, I'd have to undertake a Johnson-esque U-turn on my positioning. But for example, stamp duty cuts that are coming, that will benefit people who can afford to buy homes. It will see more movement in a housing market that's already massively inflated and therefore will do absolutely nothing for people who are struggling to get onto the housing ladder. Spending large amounts of public money on building social housing that would then subsequently pay for itself would be a progressive policy. Helping homeowners buy more houses or do more deals seems to me to be almost incomprehensible if you are seriously trying to help a lot of people. Which leads me to the question that will underpin the first hour of this morning's programme. What is this designed to do? What, what, I mean, the reason I mentioned Johnson's absence of integrity and in policy at the beginning of this introduction was, was simply because we are going to talk about Liz Truss differently from how we talked about Boris Johnson. It's the difference between somebody with no plan <clears throat> and somebody with what may prove to be a diabolical plan. Trickle-down economics seems to me to be fundamentally and fatally flawed for one very, very simple reason. The more money you've got, the less likely you are to spend it. My tax cuts, because I'm going to get very well looked after as a top-rate taxpayer. I'll be very, very well looked after by any tax cuts that Liz Truss introduces. <clears throat> are almost certainly going to stay in my savings account. If I was already living hand-to-mouth, if I was already finishing each month with a little bit less than was coming in, any money that made its way into my bank account would go straight back into the economy. This is just one simplistic and very personal, very subjective perspective on the issue. The idea that you can improve the lot of everybody by improving deliberately and specifically the lot of the best off, the lot of the wealthiest, the lot of the richest, seems to me to be actually disgusting. I, 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 I am a Catholic by, by birth, or not by birth, by baptism, uh, which means I've been raised very much in the Christian tradition. And that seems to me to be completely at odds. And here's not a phrase you'll hear from me very often. But you're talking still about people who claim they're Christian when they're trying to deport people to Rwanda. This seems to me to be against Christ's teachings. The idea that you help the poorest by making sure the richest have got more. And I want you to talk to me about that. I want you to just simply talk about whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. And whether actually those of us who strain a little too hard sometimes to see the good in everybody. I was a little bit haunted by one tweet yesterday the one that talked about my obsession to find a good Tory. And you're right. I, 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 do, I do believe that there are good people in almost all walks of life. I make exceptions for some groupings, I suppose, some political ideologies, obviously. I, good Nazis are particularly thin on the ground. But those of us who do, because it's a much healthier way to live your life, strain to see the good in everybody, perhaps 
need to turn it down on a day like today because trickle-down economics is as ghoulish and as greedy and as gross as it appears. It's not something that becomes less offensive the more you understand. It's not something that gives up its gifts the diggy, the deeper you dig into its detail. It's something deliberately and disgustingly designed to take a topsy-turvy society and put even more corn in the sacks of the wealthy while claiming that it will somehow trickle down from a sealed sack into the begging bowls of society's poorest people. And we have been so gaslit and so groomed in this country by ludicrous, self-defeating nonsense in our media about striver versus skiver, about private versus public, about, you know, hard-working people, the richest people are the hardest-working. Absolute cobblers. Absolute nonsense. But it has been so successfully perpetrated upon our people for so long that now it reaches its apotheosis. A government that will absolutely unapologetically commit itself to the idea that we help fix a tanking economy by making sure the richest people in it have got even more money than they had yesterday. Go on, riddle me that. And you have to be honest with me, I think. Don't you? Look, I'm a top-rate taxpayer. And I hate this policy. That makes me a champagne socialist or a virtue signal or whatever the word is this week to describe people who benefit from unfairness and therefore abhor, abhor the unfairness. But who is this designed to appeal to? You know who it's designed to appeal to. You hear them on this radio station all the time. Designed to appeal to people who think that they've worked harder than everybody else and that's why they're landlords. Or they've worked harder than everybody else and that's why... They're rich. No matter that they were often born 3-0 up, they think they've scored a hat-trick. They think the unfairness is justified. Or they think that a rich man belongs in his castle and a poor man belongs at his gate. Even the poor man will sometimes believe this because God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. So who is this designed to appeal to? Not just to the people who will benefit from it, the people who pay a lot of tax because they earn a lot of money, It's also designed to appeal to the people, and this is the bit I've never understood. It will also appeal to the people who will never, ever get a piece of the action. The temporarily frustrated millionaires, as John Steinbeck called them. The people who will always be on the wrong side of Easy Street, but who want the people on the right side of Easy Street to get all the breaks and all the tax cuts and all the bonuses and all the benefits, because one day, one day, I could be on the right side of unfairness. And those are the people, I think, that fascinate me the most. Someone asked me the other day, what did you talk about before Brexit? and Boris Johnson. And I struggled to remember. But if you did listen to the programme back in those days, you'd have heard that Steinbeck quote a thousand times. There is no such thing, there was no such thing as poverty in Dust Bowl era America. Just temporarily frustrated millionaires. The people who support and sustain epic inequality, a huge unfairness, a fetishization of wealth, despite not having any. That's who Liz Truss is going after. I wonder whether at this point in our economic cycle and our national history, 
I wonder whether it will work this time. What we forgot, crucially, is that to make this consistent with a democratic political order, you need institutions that manage the domestic economy and cushion the international processes I've described, manage them too, if you like, working side by side. And people forgot the latter. Um, now, is this easy? No, it can't be, because the economy is naturally and has been ever since modernity began, let's say two centuries ago, powerfully international. It can't cease to be so. But most countries, there's simply no choice. But that creates the danger of wild markets. It creates the mar the danger, if you don't manage it, of huge financial crises. It creates the danger of radical shifts in income distribution. All of these can be dealt with, but they it requires effort and will to do so. And the problem, I think, is we've got what you call hierarchy in markets, I would just call world markets. While we have decided, particularly in our countries, to reduce the role of and effectiveness of government. And that creates this, this wild and unstable process, I think, now um, that we have been seeing. Speaking of wild and unstable processes, maybe this would be a good time to talk about what's happening in the UK right now, because I think that a lot of, of the American audience follows it and really doesn't have a good grasp of what's transpiring there. Talk a little bit about that, Martin. I think we need to put this in a longer term context. Um, the uh, UK has had substantial difficulty in managing the well, the more recent processes of economic development and of and avoiding falling behind. Uh, and that's really, you might say, is the whole post-war period. So in 1950, the UK was one of the richest European countries. And now it's uh, not at the bottom. I'm thinking of Western European countries, but it's uh, probably uh, uh, ranked about 15th or below in GDP per head. I haven't looked at that detail, but it's fallen many, many places uh, in that ranking. And that's because of a whole series of problems in the British economy. Uh, Margaret Thatcher came along in 1980, promising to solve that problem by moving radically to the market. And there were some improvements. Productivity growth seemed to improve, but the economy became substantially more unequal. Our industry was very badly damaged. And that created large areas of a country which um, were poor and remaining poor. They weren't getting any better. You've got similar problems, of course, regionally in America too, high levels of regional inequality and very unhappy people. Uh, but this was sustainable until the financial crisis because everybody was growing. But since the financial crisis, 2007 to nine, GDP per head in the UK has been more or less stagnant because productivity growth has more or less ceased. Nobody fully understands why it's so, been so bad, but it has been. Um, we've had a conservative government which promised to fix this and failed signally. And as people got angrier, more upset, people had to find a scapegoat. And the European Union was the scapegoat. The European Union's bossiness and its 
and its uh, regulation and all the rest of it, all these foreigners who were pushing us around, as it were. And that generated the pressure on the right for a Brexit, for a vote on EU leaving the EU. And that in turn, um, uh, and that by a whisker, as it were, won. So we, we went off in a wild, very damaging policy direction uh, at the behest of a relatively small number of, of zealots um, who had persuaded the vast majority of people that what was ailing them, the things that were wrong for them, was something to do with the European Union, which was simply a lie. And ever since that sort of revolutionary proposition that we must transform ourselves to justify this huge leap into the dark has become the dominant push motive, the force in British politics, at least in this government. And we saw it with the, the sort of exit deal we had from the EU, a very bad one, a very controversial one. We saw it in the raising of Boris Johnson, wildly unsuitable person to be prime minister, and then Liz Truss, an even more wildly unsuitable person. And they're there only because of this Brexit fantasy. And what's happened in the last month is that the most uh, zealous believers that if only we deregulate, slash taxes, do a economics, deregulate as if the EU didn't exist, can we transform the economy into something exciting, dynamic, revolutionary? And they tried this. In the middle of a world crisis, this is a world crisis, they decided to do this and they destabilized markets because people thought that investors who had to finance the British government and finance Britain, which runs a huge current account deficit, they decided obviously that this was no longer a soundly managed country, it was a country managed by wild risk takers and that led to a crash in first sterling and then uh, our government bond market, which is called the gilt market. And this was such a disaster with these soaring long-term interest rates, which affect mortgage rates. We have variable rate mortgages mostly and forced the Bank of England to intervene. It was a massive crisis. It was obviously that these people had overreached insanely and the chancellors had to go, the prime minister had to go. And with luck, but I stress with luck, we will have reached the limit of the Brexit fantasy and the advantage in Britain is we have two advantages over the US. We can't go as far in the wrong direction as the US because we simply don't have the same weight and power to do whatever we want. That's quite good. And the second, uh, I think while these Brexiters are pretty crazy in many ways, there isn't the sort of social authoritarian, social conservative, and if I may use the word racist element, on the scale I think it, we see in the US. So I believe, hope that this will be a temporary madness and we will go back to a more reasonable sort of politics. Um, but that does depend on getting a decent government which deals with a lot of our deeper problems. And now that will fall on Labour uh, because I think it's almost certain to win the next election and we'll have to see what happens. I, I'm... I'm less pessimistic now than I've been for a while, but I would stress I'm not wildly optimistic because the problems we've had in our economy, very different from yours, but with some similarities, are deep-seated and they, they are social as well as economic by now. And it's difficult to run the country in a coherent and sensible way 
in this context. I know you have to go. One final question with respect to that. Did Brexit at least diffuse some of the populist rage that, that, that we see in other places in Europe right now? I think it has in the following respects. Uh, the um, It's been tried and people increasingly realize that it hasn't worked and that we are not better off as a result, but we are worse off. And people increasingly realize that the people who promoted this most actively are incompetent and foolish. And um, the thing that most encourages me is right now, so this is a contrast, say, with the US, uh, the Labour Party is expected to get about 50% of the vote in the next election, and the Conservatives 25%. That's what the polls are showing. The The Conservatives have never polled so low. It's just incredible. So a very large proportion of the population seems to have decided these people are crazy and they made promises that they couldn't keep and perhaps never intended to keep. This is encouraging. And in addition, I would suggest that the core political institutions of our country have continued to work in the sense Boris Johnson was a liar and a rogue and we got rid of him. Um, Kwasi Kwarteng was an incompetent finance minister. We got rid of him at record speed and the same with Liz Truss. And no one out there in British politics is successfully trying to mobilize public opinion around a strategy like uh, Donald Trump's. So uh, that sort of hyper-conservative policy is not actually one that we are seeing. Um, So I am moderately optimistic that the basic social stability of Britain will remain. One of the more striking things is in Brexit, one of the big issues was stopping or controlling immigration. But the British public seems to have decided that immigration isn't such a terrible thing after all. And it has ceased to be a front rank issue in British politics, which in many ways are different or every country is different. So I'm modestly optimistic that that fever, which was captured by the Brexiters and the anger captured by the Brexiters with the promises they made, which have so obviously proved false, that fever may now break and we will get back to something more normal. And really and truly, unlike, say, in France or Italy and elsewhere, there are really are no obvious fascistic, anti-democratic, authoritarian tendencies as far as I can see in our politics. No one imagines we won't have a fair election. Uh, Nobody imagines that we won't be able to get rid of leaders who misbehave. And that's at least modestly encouraging. We've just heard clips today, starting with AJ Plus explaining the recent history of the UK leading up to and following Brexit. The Financial Times laid out the six interlocking crises the UK is facing. Kay and Skittles looked at the dynamics of neoliberalism and the legacy of Thatcherism. Double Down News featured George Monbiot explaining the need for a functioning government and social safety net to stave off fascism. Democracy Now! also spoke with George Monbiot about the short but eventful tenure of Liz Truss as Prime Minister. 
James O'Brien described on LBC the dirty, ghoulish lie of neoliberalism and trickle-down economics, and Who, What, Why discussed the trajectory of the UK through the context of internationalism versus Thatcherism, the frustration that led to Brexit, and the saving grace that at least they don't seem to have a hyper-conservatism, the likes of Trumpism, brewing in the UK. At least not yet. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Financial Times featuring the voices of many small business owners describing their difficulties dealing with the post-Brexit market. That is the long-term danger for the British economy, that smaller companies that used to expand by starting to move into European markets, which was very easy to do before 2016, will simply just not do that. We were just upsetting all our customers. One of them actually said to us, we don't want to do with the UK anymore. I mean, we can find equal product, products from the, within the EU. So I'm really sorry. It was a tough conversation. We went to a trade show. No European customers came to the UK pavilion. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, to finish off, I just want to tie in a seemingly unrelated story as I'm recording. The news that Nancy Pelosi's house was broken into and her husband attacked is still breaking and you know details are trickling out. Apparently, the attacker was looking for Nancy herself, and it seems likely it was politically motivated. And after January 6th, no event of this kind should be seen as surprising. In fact, I find it surprising that it hasn't happened more often or sooner. I bring it up now because I think it's very much connected to the topic of today's show. It's not obvious at first glance, Today, we talked, you know, about the UK, yes, but really it's mostly about the effects of neoliberalism on society more broadly, definitely including the United States. I mean, it was called the Thatcher-Reagan era for a reason. They shared an ideology that shaped both countries across the Atlantic for decades. And my big takeaway from this episode is the importance of social stability, because the alternative is a cascade of horrors that we've seen before and are seeing again right now. The most famous example is that the Nazis only managed to take over power in Germany because it was during a period of extreme instability and frustration. Humans hate instability and will reach for whatever solution seems most likely to be able to stop it, and since the far right thrives on making broad, oversimplified promises about law and order, emphasis on the order, that can sound appealing in a time of instability in a way that it wouldn't during a more stable time. In our current period, we're being destabilized on many fronts simultaneously, the internet and social media have been incredibly destabilizing. They're changing the ways we disseminate and consume information. And while we're still getting used to that, we get hit first by a major recession and now a pandemic. Obviously, these things isn't where our problems started. We had 30 years of neoliberalism before the advent of social media that really sort of softened us up as a society, for economic insecurity and this idea of hyper-individualism that primed us for social media, which was always going to strain social ties, but we were really primed to have it completely rip apart 
our already frayed social fabric. Neoliberalism tears away at social fabric, so does social media, so to have both was particularly damaging. Then, when people are still in a state of precarity and the right-wing reactionary forces are offering authoritarianism as their solution to the problems of neoliberalism, that's when we get the pandemic, which, again, would have been destabilizing in any event in the best of times. But we were already on shaky ground. And if you recall, January 6th was not the first instance of right-wing violence that's happened recently. Before that, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, was targeted by right-wing militiamen in a kidnapping plot over Michigan COVID mitigation policies. Now, luckily, that plot was foiled before it got off the ground, but it just as easily could have resulted in a scenario very similar to the news that's coming out of Nancy Pelosi's house. So my point isn't to discount the role of right-wing extremism in the rise of political violence, but to actually expand our understanding of the context in which that violence has emerged. A society built on the premise that we don't need stabilizing systems and that pure individualism and grit are all people need will breed first economic instability and then social and political instability, fueled in part by conspiracy theories, believed by people who are sort of primed to believe things that are unbelievable because of the state of precarity. And the person who broke into Nancy Pelosi's home and attacked her husband, the one piece of news that has come out about him so far is that he was a major conspiracy theorist. Unsurprising. So once again, the personal is political, and it's important to understand the context of structural forces that play into and help make more likely these kinds of individual actions. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss discuss the show or news or other shows or whatever you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.